Inez, I am an alcoholic. Oh, just got a notice that we're recording. Uh, I don't know if you guys heard that, but I certainly did. <laughs> Again, my name is Nate Inez. I am an alcoholic. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you tonight, today, this morning, uh, wherever you are. Um, I want to thank Pax for inviting me. Did I say that correctly, Pax? Is that right? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Great. Um, seems like I've been in England a lot. Of course, it's been during the season where nobody's flying anywhere. So I haven't got to see all these wonderful places, um, but it has been fun being able to do this. And what a wonderful way to experience the Worldwide Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know about you guys, but, um, you know, I experienced AA um, first um, as an individual, then as part of a home group, uh, then maybe a district or some other general service structure. Um, but we don't always all get to experience the worldwide fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, during this last 18 months, um, it's been a very negative thing that I've heard repeatedly in meetings, how we've had to go to Zoom and, and you know, we weren't able to meet together like we used to and all those other things. And, and at least in my area, I wanted to put the end to that negativity simply because I've met plenty of people that have gotten sober here. In, in this format and have been able to stay sober. And so I think it does them a discredit uh, when we're constantly talking about how much better it used to be when this is the only experience they've had. And so we need to be mindful of that as members of Alcoholics Anonymous that um, everyone shows up here right on time, regardless of what the world has going on. And, um, and so I appreciate the opportunity once again to experience this fellowship as it exists worldwide in all of its many different ways that it's practiced. Uh, my sobriety date is October 3rd, 2008. Uh, that is not my first sobriety date, but it will be my last should I continue to practice these principles in all my affairs, work the steps as they're laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and continue to work with others. My home group is the Rochester Meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you ever find yourself in Rochester, Washington at 7 p.m. on a Thursday night, I do invite that you stay here. Um, come visit us. And, uh, and we'll have some fun. If you're coming all the way from England, I'm going to ask you one main question. What in the hell are you doing in Rochester, Washington? But after that, you know, we'll have some fun. Anyway, I, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to have a few conversations with Pax as we were getting ready for this meeting. And, and he was asking me like questions like, you know, if I had to think about a favorite quote out of the book. And, and uh, I am a lover of our literature. Um, so that was a very difficult question, and I appreciated it very much because it really made me think about, you know, what, what's really had these, these impacts on my sobriety and on my life. And, you know, one that always jumps out to me is rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Uh, notice path is singular. It is not plural. Well, we hear a lot about the journeys that we're on and, and the paths that we trudge, uh, the book uses path as in its singular form. And so I think that's worth mentioning, especially as it lays out um, how we recover from alcoholism in the 12 steps. But that wasn't the line that I gave him um, because over these last few years, um, I told you guys that um, October 3rd, 2008 was not my first sobriety date and it's not. Um, I've had others, I don't know, probably like many of you, um, I've gotten sober as it were, um, multiple times uh, before I finally got sober. And, um, 
And in these last few years, there's a gentleman that's a part of my home group. That's a part of my life. He's had a, a deep and meaningful impact on my sobriety. Um, but he used to say, he used to quote this line all the time in meetings. And I can remember the first time that I heard it, I thought, that's it. That's exactly what I want for my life. And it's in the forward to the 12 and 12. Um, AA's 12 steps are a group of principles spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And, and when Pax made this graphic for my talk today, it said usefully whole again. And I, I sent back to him, I'm like, no, I don't really like that because I don't know that I was whole before. Uh, that this, this title implies that, that I'm getting whole again, which is really funny, don't you think? He makes this beautiful thing for, the, for this talk that I'm going to give, a person he's never met before. And I'm like, nah, I think you can do it better because like, if you were really trying, you know, you know what I mean? It's like ridiculous. And, and so I wanted to say, I appreciate it. This is something that I'm going to keep. Um, and I've, I've seen in, in my sobriety, I've seen a lot of these things, but I love this one mostly because of the broken glass. Um, years ago, when I was really getting fired up in this area of my sobriety, I, I started this little thing called perfectly broken. And, um, and it implies that there was a reason um, why I was alcoholic. Um, I, I needed some kind of rationale. And there's a little poem, it goes perfectly broken. This is God's plan perfectly broken by an unseen hand. Return all the pieces, your heart and soul, be perfectly broken, be perfectly whole. And so what does any of that mean? I mean, I thought we were supposed to talk about what it was like and what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. Well, I can tell you what I was like. I was pretty busted. Um, I started drinking when I was 13 years old and, uh, and I, I came from an alcoholic household. And uh, if you did, you know exactly what that feels like, right? The uncertainty, the, the questioning of your environment constantly, never knowing what was going to happen that day and, and just really kind of always being on edge. You know, it's like you're always walking on eggshells. And, and a, as a result of growing up in an alcoholic household, you become a very good actor. And uh, not to say that those people, those alcoholics that didn't grow up that way aren't good actors. I think most of us are. But um, we're great actors, which is really code for great manipulators and, um, and some other colorful phrases. But the point is, is from my earliest memory, I've wanted to be someone else, somewhere else doing something else. I have never felt comfortable in my own skin. And I never thought that anything that I was doing was good enough. And, and that's, that was my default. I mean, that's how I started. I haven't ingested any alcohol. That's just how I approach the world. And so growing up in this household just kind of confirmed that. And, um, and I don't blame my parents for that. I want to be really clear here. My parents did the best they could with what they were working with. That's the end of that discussion. It's taken me a lot of work through this program to get to that point. And I also want to mention that my mother is an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. She just celebrated 30 years this year. And, uh, and if it weren't, as a result of her being an active sober member, I knew where to go when it was my turn. Now, that doesn't mean because my mom's alcoholic, I became one. I don't agree with that thinking at all. Uh, that's not what our literature says, and I don't agree with it. So I'm just simply saying that we've got a few in my family that are in the rooms. So 
as long as I can remember, wanted to be someone else somewhere else, right? Growing up, learning how to become this actor, learning how to make sure that I can fit into my surroundings. And really, that's just self-preservation. When you're a young person, growing up in an alcoholic household, having that kind of uncertainty, you have to be able to adjust to your environment. I didn't realize that this would become like a part of my character, a part of my psyche for the rest of my life, at least up until I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of stories of how drunk I got and how crazy I got, but I do want to be able to identify with those that are in the room. So I will tell you this. Um, I've been arrested and done time 24 times. That doesn't count the times that I got arrested and got let go. That counts the times that I got arrested and stayed there. Um, I've been to treatment three times and failed. Um, I did have a fourth successful uh, journey through treatment, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, And I've been married and divorced multiple times. I uh, have had my children live in other states as a result of my alcoholism um, and, and really lost anything of any value as it relates to relationships or belongings, as it were. Um, But as a child, I did not drink alcoholically. So let me clarify. The first time I got drunk uh, went something like this. I was 13 years old. I went to my friend's house and I believe it was New Year's. And um, I just want to give a little forward to this story. I do not believe we talk about vomiting or um, urinating in um, bedside stands or waking up in front yards. I don't think we talk about that enough anymore. Now I can understand if that's not a part of your story, but as an alcoholic, it is a part of mine. And um, so this story starts off with a little vomiting. Um, I was 13, we drank all night and um, and it was great, right? I, I don't remember having that sense that I finally belonged and all that other stuff that I hear people talk about in meetings, but I do remember having a great time. And um, I had gotten so drunk that it was time for me to go to bed. And my friend Ben walked me into his bedroom and laid me down. And as soon as I laid down, that was it. I got on my back and up in the air went the vomit, back down onto my face it came. And and good enough for Ben, he was kind to get that out of my mouth so I didn't suffocate and I passed out. So I woke up the next morning and I'm like, what's happening? What's happening? I can't see, right? And then it's like... Oh, so the vomit had hit my face and dried my eyes shut. Right. So I had to get all of that open and kind of moving again. Uh, So I just want to share with you, that was my first experience with drinking and I could not wait to do it again. Now, whether I was alcoholic or not at my first drink, that was my first experience. And so someone would say that I had a poor response to it, considering I started planning the next one. But I can tell you because of a good healthy dose of fear in my household and just not wanting to do things that I thought were going to be bad for me, I didn't spend a lot of time as a kid drinking or raising hell or breaking into things or I just didn't do that. Um, At a young age, I was in the military and uh, we, the United States seemed to be very involved in everything that was going on in the world during that time. And so we had a lot of trips to take and things to do in other places and And when you're an active combat soldier, they don't really care how much you drink. That's just how that worked. And and I will tell you this, um, it's hell on a relationship and it's hell on a family. um, And I didn't do it any favors. And by the time I had entered the military, my mother had entered Alcoholics Anonymous. So that was 1991 when I shipped out and she shipped in. And... um, 
And it was a very different experience. And I can still remember getting my first big book in the mail. I don't, I don't know if any of you have parents that are in AA or if as parents, you know, you've done that to your kids, like where you ship them a couple pamphlets or you, you send them a big book and, and hope that they might read it. I didn't read mine. I did use it very good as a coaster. Um, it, it worked well for my beer. And, um, and that's pretty much the good that it did for me. Um, in many cases, I found myself in situations I wouldn't normally be in had I not been drinking. And, um, and oh, throughout the years, both through the military and then in the years following, my drinking just got worse. And, and here's an example of that. Um, one morning, I woke up and, and I decided it was going to be a good day to drink. I didn't have to go to work that day. And so I went to my local tavern. Uh, it was probably seven in the morning. And I ordered my first drink and, uh, and I sat there drinking throughout the day. And, um, and I don't really remember the entire day, but here's what I do remember. I woke up and I was in jail and I didn't know why I was there. And that can leave a very, very disturbing feeling inside of you. When you wake up in a cell all by yourself and have no idea why you're there and have no memory of what happened prior. And so I started kind of freaking out, right? So I don't know if any of you have been in jail, but inside of ours and said the one I was in, there's a little button and that button allows you to communicate with the desk, right? Or where all the guards sit. And so I wake up on this bunk thing and I stand up, I figure out where I'm at. I'm freaking out. I get up and I push the button and, and the guys are like, can we help you? And I'm like, yes, what am I doing here? And the guy's like, only press that button in case of emergency. And I'm like, I feel like this is kind of an emergency. I don't know why I'm here. And they're like, back away from the button. And so I step back and I'm like, man, these guys just aren't getting it. I'm freaking out. I push the button again. <clears throat> they're like, what can we do? What is your emergency? And I'm like, what am I doing here? Sir, back away from the button or we will have to, I can't remember, secure you, confine you, basically put you in that little suit and put you in a different room. And now I am freaking out. And I hear these keys, jing, 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 coming down like a high school janitor, right? You know how they have those giant rings with 5,000 keys on them to open all the doors. So I hear that jingling and coming down the hallway and I hear a guy laughing. So I'm thinking, okay, this can't be that bad. The guy's laughing and he comes. It just so happens, you guys, that I went to high school with probably 70% of the people that worked corrections inside of our local jail. So I knew a lot of them as I would come and go. And, and anyway, this one I happened to know. And he was walking down the hallway laughing and slides open the little window and he goes, Yanez, you sober? And I said, yes, what am I, what's happening? What's going on? And he's like, oh, you passed out at the bar and they brought you here to sober you up. And I was like, oh, thank God. So he opens the door and he lets me out, right? And I go down and I get my property back, you know, my shoelaces so I don't hang myself and all those kinds of things. And I'm like, wow, that was close. I walk down the street and there's a little gas station at the bottom of the bridge. I walk in, I've, I buy a, a, one of those little overnight kits you can buy at the little markets, right? It's got like a comb, this little disgusting tube of toothpaste, some string and a needle, like who's going to sew uh, on there anyway, that's weird. But so I got the comb and the toothpaste and the toothbrush, went into the bathroom, washed my face, brushed my teeth, combed my hair, walked over the bridge, back to the same tavern, sat back down, shift change. Nobody knew I was there earlier and I started again. And that is simply the best example I can give you of the phenomenon of craving 
the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body, the compulsion, all in one story. And I could not, with sufficient force, recall the events of a few hours, days, weeks, or months ago. I was an alcoholic. And so I continued to drink that way for years until finally I was really left with nothing. Everything I owned fit in two black garbage bags. I didn't have a driver license. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a place to live. And I was just basically going codependent to codependent, um, never really having a place of my own. You know, I'd work here and I'd work there. I always worked because I had to support my habit. Um, but I was just not making a go of life, as it were. And finally, on July 3rd, 2004, um, I was living with this gal and made a promise to her that I wouldn't drink. We we're going to an Independence Day celebration. And I swore all week I would not drink. I would not ruin this. And by six o'clock in the morning, I was drinking. And by 10 o'clock, I was in a blackout. And sometime later on that day, I came out of that blackout surrounded by people that were very upset with me. And I could not explain it. I didn't know what had happened. I just knew that it was time to get out of there. And so we left. And as we're arguing, driving down the highway, and I'm flailing about in the car, freaking out about how unfair things are and how horrible this person is, I hit her. I can't say to you this day whether I was intentionally hitting her or not, but what I can tell you is that I did. And every time I say it, there's a taste of acid in my mouth that tells me that something was very wrong that day. And, and it's something that I still regret, not regret the pastor wish to shut the door on it. Well, that's just not always the case. And that is something I regret, but it is something that I share. Um, not because I'm proud of it, that's for sure. But at any rate, she said, well, I'm going to call the cops now. And I said, good, call them. I'll tell them what you've been doing and we'll get this straightened out right here on the highway. And of course, the police showed up, handcuffed me, put me in the car and took me to jail. And I woke up the next morning, July 4th, 2004, uh, our Independence Day, uh, hopeless and helpless having run fresh out of hope and fresh out of ideas. Um, I don't know if I was contemplating a life with or without alcohol. I just knew what I was doing wasn't working. And I tried various ways to get my mom to come and get me. And she had been a great codependent in my life up to that point. But, but when I called her, she simply said, Nathan, I can't help you anymore and hung up the phone. And uh, I finally convinced that girl who had had me arrested the night before to come and get me. And as I looked out the window of our dining room that night, I knew that I had to do something. And the next day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. July 5th, 2004, I walked to my first meeting. It was in Onalaska, Washington. If you don't know where Onalaska, Washington is, I don't blame you. Neither does anyone else except for the people who live there. And they're still wondering why they do. Wesley, you remember it. So, uh, Sorry, just saw someone from my home group. <laughs> anyway, um, I walked to that meeting and I looked up on the porch and it was a bunch of people in bibbed overalls and big beards and, and they were all laughing about something. I didn't get the joke. And I walked up onto the porch and uh, I was listening to them talk. And I thought, my God, if this is Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't fit in here. This is not for me. And uh, somebody came out and said it was time to start the meeting. And they all went in and I thought, there is no way in hell I'm, I'm out of here. And as I hit the second step of that porch, a guy goes, hey. And I turned around and he had these cut off pants on that loggers in my area wear and a hickory shirt and a can of chewing tobacco in his chest pocket. 
and a silver mug of coffee in his hand. And he looked me square in the eye and he said, you never have to feel the way you're feeling ever again. And I believed him. And so I walked in behind him into that meeting. And I listened to people share their experience, strength and hope there. And what I realized was while I may not be like them, I was like them. Maybe we might not look the same or dress the same, but the stories they told and the way they spoke of how they felt, I could relate to that. I could understand it. And so I stayed and I kept staying. And uh, about three weeks into this, I'm like, my God, uh, I need to drink. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you've had that feeling once you've been sober a while, like this just ain't working. Like at that point, I had not found a sufficient substitute. And there was a one-legged guy that went to that group. We called him Pig Leg Richard because he had one leg. And, um, and I loved him. I loved him to death. And when he would introduce himself, he'd say, my name's Richard and I'm a shit in his pants wino. And he was awesome. And, um, and I was telling him about my struggle, like I'm going to drink and I don't want to. And he said, boy, you need God. And I thought, I mean, now I don't know how it is where you guys are, but that can be a, a startling experience for someone just to say that. I will tell you that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous takes the first four chapters of the text to get you to the place where it says you need God. Now, it doesn't say what your conception is. It just says that, right? Lack of power was our dilemma. Anyway, so I'm like, fine, whatever. I'm telling you guys, I was so desperate at that point. It could have been a snake oil salesman. Like, I don't care. Send me whatever's in the jar. I need it because this ain't working. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, you might need some treatment. And uh, I thought, okay, where do I get that? And, and so I looked up a place and I went. And I walked down the long hallway of that treatment center. And, and it's, I always call it the walk of shame. You know, it's like you're walking down this hallway and you're just like, you just want to die. And I got up to the desk and there's this little tiny old lady sitting behind the desk. And she looks up at me and she says, well, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm going to drink and I don't want to. And she said, oh, honey, have a seat. We can help you with that. And so I sat down and the guy came out and took me into his office and asked me a bunch of questions. And so it looks like I, uh, I made it in. I passed the test. And uh, so they said, just come here three times a week and, and we're going to help you with what's going on. And, and so I did. And about the third week in, um, I was there um, with that girl and, and this guy, you know, the guy that had asked me all those questions. We were there on family night. And I don't know if they have family night where you guys are, but it's where they parade all the zoo animals in. So the family and friends can kind of see how they're being fed and how they're being treated at the treatment center. And, and that's what it felt like, you know, it's like <laughs> we're just a bunch of ridiculous people here. But anyway, as we're sitting there, she says to me, you know, I know that guy. And I said, really? And she goes, yeah, he's a pastor. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, he's a pastor in our area. I said, wow. And so after the, after the session was done, I walked up to that guy and I said, hey, are you a pastor? And he goes, yeah, I pastor a little church out by where we live. And, and I said, can people like me go? And he said, yeah, people like you can go. That following Sunday, I went to church for my very first time. Um, and I've been going there for 17 years. And that man who was my uh, treatment counselor who became my pastor is now very much like my dad. He was also my first sober, sober. He was also my first sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous as he's a recovering alcoholic and uh, has probably had the single most impact on my life of any other living individual that is. 
So sobriety starts, right? Away we go, staying sober, toxic as hell, still reeking like booze, making all kinds of mistakes, but at least I'm not drinking. I mean, you guys remember what that's like, right? When you're in your, you know, early recovery, like that's a really like loaded phrase, right? Early recovery. I don't know about you guys, but early recovery for me lasted about 10 years. So if you're in your first 90 days, there's some hope for you. Um, about 10 years for uh, early recovery. So <clears throat> at any rate, um, things are going great, man. I mean, it's like I'm working the steps. I was not like many people that I've heard. Like I got no relief after the fifth step. I was not afraid of my four step. I didn't care. A lot of my stuff had been in the newspaper. I didn't have any more secrets. It didn't matter to me. I didn't have anything to lose. So I wrote my inventory. I shared it. I didn't feel better. I felt like I felt worse. Um, cause now I was fully and completely aware of just the heel that I'd been in my life. Um, but I started to find out some of the reasons why in six and seven and then eight, I made my list of people that I owed amends to. And that's where I started to get relief was step nine. That's where I got it. When I had to start going to these people and making amends and, and not just making apologies cause they'd heard it all, uh, but asking how I could set things right and, and continuing to live this program in my daily life through 10 and 12, 10 through 12. And man, you know, I, I started a very successful business and a, and a center for youth in our area and things were just rocking and rolling. And I was doing this and speaking everywhere. And I mean, things were just insane. And I, I, I got drunk. <laughs> I mean, that's what happened. Um, there's no explanation for it. I didn't quit going to meetings. I didn't fire my sponsor. None of that other nonsense that I hear constantly. Um, the fact is, is I was extremely active in all areas of recovery. And October 2nd, 2008, I got drunk. And um, because when you separate me from you and me from God, all that leaves me with is me. And the only thing I know how to do completely is drink. When, when I remove myself from a power greater than me, and when I move, remove myself from the fellowship that is you, um, the only thing left with is me, and, and I can't live with that. Uh, so I drank. And uh, October 3rd, 2008, I called my sponsor, and I said, Donnie, uh, I got drunk last night, got some new charges. And he said, I'm coming over. And I said, no, you're not. He said, I'm coming over. And I said, you can come over, but I'm not going to open the door. And he said, I'm coming over and you're going to open the door or I'll call the cops and tell them you're trying to kill yourself and they'll kick the door down. So I opened the door and he walked in and he said, when are you going to understand that you deserve this life? And I thought this life, my God, <clears throat> I'm living in this crappy little apartment after starting this business and getting all this success and doing all this stuff. I'm sitting on the floor of said apartment with no furniture. And I'm thinking this life, like you can have it. The guys had come over to eat a meal at my house. I didn't even have enough plates for him to eat on. Donnie had to eat on a pan lid. I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, what is it that I'm missing? And, um, and, and at that moment, I didn't know. But let's get back to happily and usefully whole, shall we? What happened on October 3rd, 2008, is I had a surrender I didn't have yet. See, I had been an Alcoholics Anonymous and made this declaration for four and a half years that my name's Nate and I'm an alcoholic. And what I hadn't fully done was identify as alcoholic. In other words, I hadn't looked across the table and saw myself in you. And I think that's the problem that a lot of us suffer from because our egos take over and we start to look at all the things that separate us and make us different instead of the things that bind us and make us whole. 
And what helps to make me whole is sitting across a table looking at you and knowing that we have much more in common than we have different. We have much more to be hopeful for, hopeful for together than we do apart. I can draw my strength from you and from God through you instead of being over here thinking I got it all figured out. But I needed some more humility first and I was about to get it. I went to a conference and, and there were some men there that I had never heard of or met before. And a guy came over to my table and he sat down. And he goes, hi, my name's Wayne. I'm like, oh, okay, hi. And then there's another big guy comes over and he goes, hi, my name's Tim. And I'm like, oh, hey. And, and they started talking to each other and they started talking real fast and real loud. And that was something that I could, I could understand. I, I could identify with that. And Wayne was talking all about these things like emotional sobriety and all this stuff. And Tim was talking about conferences and all this other stuff. And I'm like, wow, these are, this is awesome. And the next day, Wayne did a workshop called We Agnostics. And I went to that workshop and he said, those of us that are agnostically inclined. Well, what? Like, what did you just say? What's that mean? See, remember, I told you guys that my first sponsor was a pastor. I'd been going to church for four and a half years. I had been introduced to a concept of God that I could get along with. I had no problem with it. I don't care what yours is or what anybody else's is, but I had one that I made mine. The problem was, is it wasn't giving me the power that page 44 talks about. It was all out here somewhere and it wasn't doing me any earthly good. That's just the truth. And so I'm listening to Wayne talk and he talks about being agnostically inclined. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, first you got to know what agnostic mean. And I said, okay, go ahead. And he said, agnostic, A, apart from or separate from, gnostic, the knowledge or power of God, which means you are naturally separate or apart from the knowledge and power of God. It's your default setting. And I thought, my God, I wish somebody would have told me that. So what do I need to do? And he goes, well, funny that you should mention that. The big book gives you the exact directions on what you need to do to relieve your problem. Because that's what it says we suffer from, a singular problem. Most would say that's drinking. Chuck C would differ. Chuck C said we have one problem. That is our unconscious and conscious separation from God. Okay. All right. Now we're getting somewhere. And as a result of that introductory meeting, about a year later, I would gather with some very close friends of mine and ask them for their help that I needed desperately to put on a conference on emotional sobriety. And they said yes, and we did it together. And they worked hard and they volunteered and they donated and they did all the things. And, and they came and did this first emotional sobriety workshop. And man, I started to feel free. And then we did another one and I started to felt freer. And, um, and I was working this program as it's laid out in the book and I was doing it long form. Like I wasn't going home at night and looking back at the events of the day and thinking, man, was I an asshole today? Because that's, that, that's what most people do for a, a thorough 11 step inventory. Notice they said 11th. The 10-step inventory, the spot check inventory, which is found on page 84, is great as I go through my day. But when I retire at night is in step 11. And, and the question is, is am I doing that? Am I going through those questions? Or am I just going through the motions? And so the fact is, is what Wayne would have me do is write out those questions and then write out the answers, then be responsible and take action on what I found. And then in the morning on awakening, I would have to write that out. What were my plans for the day? What am I doing? What's my prayer? What's my spiritual principle? What's the step I'm focused on? I mean, we're talking about lengthy handwritten stuff, right? There were no apps at this time for doing this stuff. But I can tell you what it did do. It got me very, very in tune with the inventory process as it's laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to work the program for the first time in my sobriety, and I thought I'd been doing it all along. 
And as I'm going along and I'm starting to get more and more free, it doesn't mean life was getting easier, right? Like I wasn't floating around AA meetings. In fact, there were many times that I felt worse because for the first time as I was identifying the problems and then working through them toward a solution, I wasn't just acting like they weren't there anymore. Like God removes everything that blocks me from him. Everything else is on my lap. And so it's a process, right? We got to stick around long enough for it to work. I told you guys about the sponsorship and all that other stuff. Larry was my sponsor for only 18 months. And Donnie had been my sponsor at this point for years. And, and I have since got another sponsor. His name is Maddie. And, and, um, but the point is, is I've stayed sponsored the whole time I've been sober. In addition to that sponsorship, I've also had to find other people that I've been able to work with that have helped me in areas I've needed to grow. I mean, isn't that kind of the point of the attraction rather than promotion is when I hear somebody who has what I want, it doesn't mean that I'm somehow cheating on my sponsor. It just has, they have something I want. And so I need to be able to go get it. And one of those things was conscious contact with God. Now, I'd been in church for years at this point, and I'd done all the spiritual things. I'd worked the steps. Look, the steps lead somewhere. They lead to a spiritual awakening, right? I think we can all agree on that. That's what happens in 12. But we don't stop there. It has to continue beyond that. The steps lead somewhere. And so if I'm continuing to grow in understanding and effectiveness, as I'm admonished on page 87, excuse me, 85, then I've got to be willing to move forward in my sobriety. And there was a guy doing a workshop in Olympia. His name was Tom and it was on prayer and meditation. And I thought, you know, I've gotten this far on all this other AA stuff that I never did. And I'm just doing it as it's laid out. Maybe I should go hear what this guy has to say, because it's not another guru. It's not another pastor. It's not another hocus pocus, you know, magic carpet ride. It's like he wrote a book called prayer and meditation, living the life promised in the 11th step. And that was intriguing to me. And so I went to the workshop and I walked in, right? And he's like, hi, my name's Tom. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, this whole thing is going to be about rainbows and butterflies. And I cannot sit for this. The problem was, is due to my ego, of course, I walked through the middle of the room and sat down at a front table. Well, once the show starts, if you get up and walk out, everybody knows. And then it's like, well, what the hell's wrong with you? And what this is, you know what I mean, right? So my ego at that point, you know, still fully and in fact, kept me planted. And as a result of that, I heard a message that I could never run here. And it was about being connected to God in a way that I had never been connected. And it was through the practice of AA's 11th step. And so after that workshop, I asked Tom, you know, if I, I wanted to get to know him a little better, but I wanted to become where I lived and to do a, a similar workshop. And as a result of that, we became great friends. He became a, a very powerful mentor in my life, especially in this area. And for the first time, I was connecting with God in what I believed was a real way, where I could feel fresh power rush in, right? That's what our book tells us about fourth dimension living. I could feel it. And as much as that word is overused, that's what I needed. That's how Scott got me to stop and go to my first meeting. And that's how I was going to stay. I wanted to feel it. And I could. 
And so I started to travel around with Tom and do these workshops with him. And really what that meant was I'd carry his books around and, and pass things out. And we would go into prisons and Salvation Armies and all over the place doing these different AA halls. And it was fantastic. It was wonderful. In fact, a couple of years ago, he and I went to London together to watch our Seattle Seahawks play the Oakland Raiders in Wembley Stadium. And uh, with about 86,000 countrymen over there, we went to this game and it was an amazing experience. And, and, uh, and the impact that Tom had on me is I cannot begin to describe it. And last year with this COVID, um, he got it. And uh, he was an older gentleman. Uh, no real underlying health conditions outside of, you know, 50 years of alcohol and drug abuse. Um, but as a result of the COVID, uh, he passed away. And so um, a, a week, about a week after I had had emergency um, gallbladder surgery, um, he was in the hospital on a ventilator in an induced coma that he wasn't going to come out of. And his brother had traveled from Seattle to Denver to visit him and he called me and um, he put it on video from Tom's hospital room. And he said, there is nothing more. He was there with Tom's two daughters. And, uh, and he said, there's nothing more that we could think of that would mean more to him than if you would be willing to come and pray with him while we waited. And I said, okay. And so <clears throat> against Corey's wishes, uh, cause she thought it was too soon. <laughs> Um, and her love for me and not putting myself in harm. Um, I went to Denver and I sat in his hospital room for two days as we listened to music. He was in a coma, um, but we listened to music together and I prayed with him and prayed for him. And, and, um, and the morning that I left, he died. And, and I don't say all that to, to be sad um, because I'm not sad. It's an emotional experience for me that I get to feel because I'm here. And that's the truth. See, part of being whole, part of being usefully whole is that I'm of some earthly use and that I'm able to experience the broad range of emotions God has given me in their fullness without needing to drink or use. And that's what I've been given here. I've been given that and so much more. I told you guys I showed up here with two black garbage bags, fresh out of hope and fresh out of ideas. And I don't know if I'm more grateful for the things that I've lost in AA or the things that I've gained, because the things that I've lost are things like anxiety, fear and depression, insecurity and uncertainty. I've lost those things. And I've gained things like peace and serenity and a quiet place in the bright sunshine, a sense of belonging and a sense of fellowship, a sense of hope a sense of purpose. I've got all of that as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been telling everybody that I've done these meetings with for the last 18 months, if there is one body of people on this planet who should be able to, no matter the season, carry a message of hope into the world in which they live, it is the Worldwide Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, period. Because we've lived through hell. This ain't nothing. And so I would encourage you, that as we go about our daily lives, our comings, our goings, our ins and our outs and the meetings and all of the things that we do to remember that. And in, in the United States, in a season of thanks for many meetings across the world, it's gratitude month. What more do we have to be grateful for than a sense of hope and a place to belong? 
everywhere in the world we go. And today, that's a pretty big, big space for me. I live in a small town, uh, in a small home, on a small piece of property um, with the woman I love, surrounded by dear friends and a great family and a place to belong. I mean, if it weren't for those people that I just described, I wouldn't be here. One of them's on my screen right now. He's been my closest friend for over a decade. And I don't know how many scrapes that he's helped me through. And there are probably others in this meeting. But what I know today is I am eternally grateful for the fact that they stayed here long enough to help me. Because that's really what we're talking about. And today, life is good, I guess. I mean, life is life, man. We have ups and we have downs. We have things that we got to get past and, and things we got to work through and things we get to enjoy or we get to enjoy all of it. I guess the choice is ours. Is it odd or is it God? You decide. But I get to live my life like I never thought I could live it. And one of the brightest spots of that are the things I just described to you, as well as being able to participate in the Worldwide Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in the country of Belize. Um, we started going there about, well, I started going about seven, eight years ago. Corey started going about 20 years ago. And then, in fact, that's where we met two years ago. We met at an AA meeting in Belize. And, um, and Belize is very much like we were in the 30s. They have less than 100 active members in the fellowship. And so I get to travel around with people there. And we're like AA missionaries, man, going from town to town, carrying the message. And it's cool. Um, I think the coolest part that our home group overlooks the Caribbean Sea, because that's a lot better than a lot of what we're looking at Washington State. I mean, it rains constantly here. Um, but it's just one of the many gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. And uh, it's one that I'm eternally grateful for, just like being able to share in your meeting. Thanks, you guys.